Good morning, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad to have you in the house. Well, I hope you had a great fourth. Happy Fourth of July weekend. And um, in concert with the theme of celebrating our freedom, I want to talk to you about where I believe our nation is and how we as a church can best respond. The, the primer for this is the decision that the Supreme Court rendered about 10 days ago regarding same-sex marriage. But I want to draw the lens back a little bit and talk about where we are in a larger way than just on that issue. And I realize that when I finish my comments, your ears may be so full, you don't hear anything I have to say in my sermon. (laughs) But it's important, I believe, for the church and its voice pieces to address issues beyond just those which are important to your personal progress. The church has some role in society, not to control it, but definitely to influence it. We're to be salt in a corrupt environment and light in the midst of darkness. Paul says to Timothy that we are supposed to be the pillar and the support of truth. So we ought to position ourselves like this all the time whenever we see things crumbling. Be the one group of people that say, no, this is what truth is, and I choose to, to use my life as a support so that society remains pleasing to God. The Supreme Court ruling did a couple of things. Um, it legitimized something that, that we as a congregation believe is illegitimate, but it, but it allowed for rounding out of our nation's disobedience to be as full as it can be. There are four pillars upon which all society is based. These four foundational anthropological pillars are beyond those which we could define as Christian, though they fit under the Christian umbrella. They were made before Christianity was ever established, thousands of years before. The four are found in Genesis 1 and 2. What a man is, what a woman is, what marriage is, and what accountability to God means. We see the history of creation in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and we can take that and and stride and, and look at it as a lesson. But it also lays out the framework and the architecture of how man can function best, how God intended man to function. And when you rip out those four things, society cannot survive. This is, not, this is not Christian in its orientation, though it fits in Christian theology. This is anthropological. This is just the foundation of how God created man. So you don't have to be a Christian to believe what I'm saying. But if you are a Christian, you probably should. We've said that a man is not a person that has an X and a Y chromosome. Not necessarily. In fact, a man can be Anybody who decides to be one, when they decide through, through their psychology, that they choose to be one. And they can make all the necessary changes in order to make that happen. We just said that a woman is not a woman who has X and X chromosome. But a woman can be anyone who decides to become one. We said that marriage is not between a man and a woman. But whom anybody desires to, to say, I do too. 
And we've said that God really is not the being to whom mankind needs to be accountable. We can actually do what we want and be just fine. We don't need any parameters. We don't need any guideposts. We can do what we want. Now, when you rip out those four things that are found in Genesis 1 and 2, societies don't need conquerors from the outside. They just fall apart from the inside. Those of you who are happy about the decision from 10 days ago, please be careful that you do not let your compassion and your care for people to lead your theology. You become man-centered rather than God-centered. And it doesn't mean that you don't have to like the people or deeply love them, that somehow it compromises your love to disagree. My goodness. I got seven kids, most of whom I have disagreed with everything they've done. Everything they've done. I mean, if you're a parent, that's what you do. You say no. You say no more than you say yes. But it doesn't compromise my love for them. And that we as Christians ought to love those who agree with this decision better and more frequently than anybody else. Those of you who are really mad about this decision because... Gosh, our society is crumbling and America is no longer what I grew up in. Get over it. <laughs> You're more mad about what America is not than you are happy about what God might do through this. You're not looking toward the vision of what the Lord wants you to become in the midst of darkness. You're more holding on to the America you wish still survived. She's dead. She's gone. She's not coming back. It's over. Unless we have a spiritual awakening in our society, the America that we grew up in, ethnic tension notwithstanding, is gone. Deal with it. And don't allow your anger for what, has, what America has become to get in the way of you being extremely loving and kind to those who agree with this. You'll be in trouble. Both sides, those who agree and those who disagree, will find themselves opposing God. Please be careful. And lastly, it's important for the church to have a role in this. Now, I, w I really want you to vote. I want you to petition. I want you to be a responsible American citizen that takes the stewardship of the citizenry well and does whatever you believe is most biblically responsible at the polls. Please be responsible. But whatever your responsibility looks like, don't trust in it. Even if all the people with whom I agree get in office, that doesn't mean the kingdom comes. God is not waving an American flag, say, go, go, America, go. I hope you get the right people in office who agree with what I say. America is not the kingdom. Can it have some kingdom principles? Should it? Yes. I think every nation, every nation ought to be guided by kingdom principles. But the kingdom is best reflected in the church. And so God said the healing of a nation isn't much dependent upon how the nation goes as much as how the people of God go. So 2 Chronicles 7 says, as if my people, and this was built upon the premise when Solomon prayed when he dedicated the temple, saying, if your people disobey, if they run away from you, if they do the wrong thing, God, please come and help. And 2 Chronicles 7, 14 and 15 was the response of God to that prayer. He said, if I send pestilence on the land, if drought and plague begin to, to affect my people, I want you to know, if they, if my people who are called by my name, 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. God's not dependent on society being right for society to be right. What he's dependent upon is you being right. So if you believe your Bible, don't just believe bits and pieces. Believe it all. Believe your Bible. Don't believe the part that is just convenient for you. Believe your Bible. And love people even when you disagree with them. That's, that's right. Now, having said that, I realize some of you are saying, whoops, okay, i got to find another church. I get it. I get it. I really do. I get it. I'm not the pastor you thought. We're not the church you thought. And there are better congregations out there, better pastors. If you don't feel like you can walk with us, I love you, care about you. May you find a better pastor, and may you find a better church. Turns me over to the book of Malachi. We're going to continue our series on preparing and on-ramp for God, and this is the last in the series. It's been six months. (laughs) The title of the message is Giving, Giving. Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Malachi 3, verses 8 through 12. Will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe, verse 10, into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, then I will rebuke the devourer from you so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine cast its vine in the field cast its grapes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 12, And all the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Lord, help us as we study. God wants to bless you. He wants to provide for you just like a dad does his own children. And he wants to create avenues whereby the blessing is uninterrupted. But there are things that we need to do that allow him the privilege of full access to our lives because some of the interruptions are created by us. Some of the inhibitors are of our own making. And God desires to bring it to us, but we just haven't complied. And we put a whole bunch of very large speed bumps on the ramp for him to get to us. And so he's having a hard time trying to get the blessings and deliver them to you because you haven't built a speed ramp that allows him, an on-ramp that allows him to get to you in a hurry. And the people in Malachi's day, this is about 400 years before the birth of Christ, and this is the last recorded prophecy that we have, the book of Malachi, before we get to the New Testament. Now, it doesn't mean that there weren't other prophets or significant voices in Israel. We just don't have them recorded. But God is dealing with the people on the basis of their worship throughout this entire chapter. 
and he talks primarily to the priests who are responsible for worship. And, and, and through this entire book, he's saying, you're messing up with respect to how you offer and what you offer. You're giving me the blind animals, the, the, the crippled animals, the diseased animals. That's what you want to you offer to me, your bad leftovers, the, one, the stuff that's been spoiled in your refrigerator. That's what you want to offer to me, the stuff you don't even want. He said, don't do that. The priests and the people were divorcing with regularity. And, and this is where this is a passage where God gives his unqualified commentary on the issue of divorce. He said, I hate it. I hate divorce. It messes up people. Kids, adults, it messes up people. And here he's talking about how important it is to deal with our finances well. And he does it in a rhetorical fashion. Meaning he says, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. And the people respond by saying, what? How? How have we robbed you? He said, you robbed me in tithes and offerings. Now, the people didn't know that they were robbing God primarily because they had an issue of who owned what. Your neighbor has a has a lawnmower. Yours is busted. In order for you to cut your lawn, you've got to go and get it. Get something to cut your lawn with. Now, you can go ask your neighbor, but you do so because you realize that your neighbor's lawnmower is your neighbor's. If you were to just walk, to walk into his garage and pick up his lawnmower, something would be wrong with that. He would come out and say, may I ask you what you're doing? All of us realize that the use of something and how we decide to use it is predicated upon ownership. Now, you don't have any issue with going to your garage and picking up whatever you need, going to your cupboard and pulling out the food, opening your, your utensil drawer and pulling out a spoon. It's yours. You can use it as you see fit. But you can't do that at your neighbor's house without asking. The people in Israel had an issue. They thought the money in their bank account was theirs. It, does that sound like anybody you know? Does that sound like anybody you know? They thought the money in their bank account was theirs. So wait a minute. How are we robbing you? What have we done? In tithes and in offerings. That's how you're robbing me. He said, wait, really? You see, everything that you have is God's. Everything you possess is his. In Exodus 19, verse 7, the Lord was speaking to Moses, trying to help define, put parameters around how distinct the people were from every other people group on the planet, that the Israelites were actually his. Why? Because they would obey him, love him, do what he says, follow his ways. And he says, if you do this, if your people will do what I'm telling them to do, I will call them mine. Because when they come into the land and they possess it, it is mine to give because the whole earth is mine. So the people's reception of resources from God were predicated on their ability to be identified with him. And God said, I own it all. I can give it to whom I wish. And this is what God is doing. It's like he's in the ready mode all the time looking for people. To whom he can give his last name before he can give his stuff. 
You know that passage I talked to you about at the beginning? If my people who call by my name will humble themselves and pray. I say that to my people in my house all the time. Meaning, if y'all who are called by my name will humble yourself and pray, we'll be all right. You turn from your wicked ways and do the right thing, we will be all right. I can tell them that because they have my name. I can't go across the street and tell those folk that. I can't tell their kids. I don't have any authority there. They don't have my name. See, when God gives you his name, he gives them authority. And it not only gives them authority to tell you what to do. By the way, you do have his name. You are called Christian, Christian, Christ-like. He gave you his name. You take his name, you hold it dear. You don't take it in vain. Taking the name of the Lord in vain is more than just using it as a curse word. It means that you take it without meaning. You hold on to this last name that defines you, and you don't live like it. You've taken it in vain. Don't do that. You've taken his name. It's not only that which defines you and, and, and then allows him the privilege of telling you what to do in a way that's different than he tells the rest of the earth what to do, but it also allows him to know to whom he can divert resources intentionally. The earth is the Lord's. And he said in Exodus 19, these are my people. I'm going to give them land and more because it's all mine to give. God is trying to get stuff to you so he can get stuff through you. It's not just about you getting. It's about you giving. And you cannot give what you do not have. He wants to make you a conduit of blessing to help change the world and make it better. They were robbing from him because they thought everything was theirs, not his. And so they were holding on to that which he required. Now, he said in tithes and offerings, the tithe was 10% of everything that that you earned. And somebody came to me and said, well, pastor, isn't that 10% thing, that tithe thing under the law? And aren't we free from the law as Christians? Because the ceremonial part no longer has any relevance to us. You don't have to wear garments like the priest did in the Old Testament. You don't have to follow the dietary laws. Why should we follow tithing? I said, well, why do you follow thou shalt not murder? (laughs) Some stuff, some stuff you need to do even if you're not told. You mean you need to be told that murder is wrong? Are you telling me that? That if, 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 if there's no one telling you, does that, does that, are you free now? Abraham started this thing called tithing. He came back from a huge victory. His nephew Lot had lived in a place where he shouldn't have lived. And that place was then overtaken by a whole bunch of other people. And they took Lot and the entire city of Sodom and Gomorrah and a whole bunch of other kings with him captive. And Abram realized, oh, my nephew's gone and done it again. I got to go get him. You know, there's some folk that you're just going to carry with you through the promised land. (laughs) And you're going to have to go get all the time. Just make sure you're not that folk. Got to go get him. So he went to war, had to bring him back, brought him back. And Sodom and Gomorrah, all the stuff, all the people. He didn't lose a man in the process. It was a miraculous victory. This king comes out from a place called Salem, a town that we had never heard of to this point, nor had we heard of this king who was also a priest. And he comes out to meet him. And the reason we believe he comes out to meet him is because Abram did something nobody had 
would ever think needed to be done. See, nobody liked Sodom and Gomorrah. Nobody in the land. In fact, there were other kingdoms that pretty much when Sodom and Gomorrah got taken, said, bye. Good riddance to you. They were a blight and a, 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 an eyesore to the entire promise that people were happy. In other words, they weren't worth saving. And, and Abram didn't just bring back, back his nephew. He brought back all the people and the kings from Sodom and Gomorrah. The king of Salem came out pretty much saying, ain't nobody like you because nobody else went after these folk. Nobody cared. You are amazing. Does that sound like anything God's done for somebody? That maybe somebody thought you weren't worth saving. That you've done some things that were despicable and messed up his planet. And yet the Lord decided that you were worth it and sent his son on your behalf. My goodness, he has done some things for you for which you were not worthy. King of Salem, who's also a priest, comes out. His name is Melchizedek. Offers him bread and wine and says, blessed be God most high. Now, Abram never heard language from anybody like that in the promised land. First time somebody knew God and talked to him and prayed. You know, you can tell a lot about folk when they start opening their mouth to God. Tell a lot. Abram said, oh, my. You know him, don't you? He, he told me to come here. I'm just conjecturing. This isn't all said there, but just follow me. <laughs> And so much was he impacted, meaning Abram over Melchizedek's prayer, that he says, I'm going to give you a tenth because you really understand who he is and you're a priest. It was to provide for the priesthood. And all God did by making a law is codify something that was supposed to be. Now, if something's supposed to be and then God codifies it, it's usually the reason that he codifies it because people won't do it when it's just supposed to be. They need a reminder. And some stuff we shouldn't have to be told. Remember, everything that you should not do is not found in the Bible. Do you know how big your Bible would have to be? Do you know how you wouldn't be able to? There aren't enough gigabytes. If God were to try to, to convey everything that you figure out might be a loophole. Pastor, it's legal to smoke weed. You think maybe I can? You think, you think, maybe I can? I said, oh, yeah, the Bible doesn't say nothing about smoking weed. You're right. You're right. You're right. You got me on that. You got the Bible say nothing about smoking weed. But you know it doesn't say anything about playing soccer on 495 either. Did you know that? Not a thing. Not a thing. Not one thing does it say about that. So, like, is it a good idea to do it? Would you do it? No, that's dumb. Exactly. <laughs> Let's be smart. Let's not be dumb. Maybe, just maybe, God didn't think you'd go out and find a weed. Dry it out. Roll it up. Light it on fire and inhale the smoke. Just maybe. He didn't think that needed to be told. Do you know how big your Bible would have to be if he listed everything you weren't supposed to do? Some stuff you're just supposed to figure out. Tithing's one of those, and it's a way for us to say thank you. Thank you for the victory I would not have had had not you helped me. And if you look at it as a law, 
You'll always be mad about having to obey. If you look at it as a privilege of saying thank you, that he actually gave you some resources with which you can offer, you will always be happy. You're robbing me in tithes and give it to me. And so he says, render it to me. You're robbing me. You're taking it from me. All the resources you have are mine. I just ask for 10%. And then offerings on top of that to give to orphans and widows and building campaigns. This is what, that's all. You get to use a lion's share of it. It's all mine. I'm giving it to you. You get to be happy. Be happy. You render it back to him. There was a guy, <clears throat> a story, true story, pastor. It was um, telling the story of a young man who came to him who worked in the landscaping business. And he was just starting putting in shrubbery, you know. He's, he was a laborer. And he's making $15,000 a year. And uh, came to the pastor and was asking for a prayer about how he could increase and get a better job and get discipled and all that. And the pastor asked him, because he was struggling to pay his bills, do, do you tithe? He said, tithe? Are you, ki- are, you, are you kidding me? Do you know how much I make? In that tithing 10%, I would have to give $1,500. I can't even pay my mortgage. Are you kidding me? He said, well, you, you really can't afford not to tithe because you, you, you're not going to get the blessings you need to be provided for nor to be able to just provide for others. He said, Pastor, I can't tithe. Maybe 1%. No, 10%. No. Went home, talked to his wife. They stepped on their faith and tithe. Three years later, he owned the landscaping company. He was making $150,000 a year. Getting ready to write his tithe check. And he, he came into the pastor, and he said, um, Pastor, I'm, I'm really grateful for everything you've done for me. What you gave me in council three years ago was amazing. Thank you. Okay. But, but you know, I'm making a little bit more money now, and the Lord's really blessed. And uh, $1,500 was one level, but $15,000, that, that, that seems to be, you know, a lot. And, and I'm just not real comfortable writing that kind of resources to the church. You know, if I give 10000 I'm still giving much more than when I gave 1500 And so I'm just wanting you to know you probably won't be. He said, Pastor said, I, I get it. I understand, really. Let, let, let's just pray. And they prayed together, Pastor said, Lord, I pray you would help him feel comfortable by reducing his salary so that he can give what... <laughs> Oh, wait, 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 stop right there. Stop right there. Don't let that prayer go any higher in the ceiling. He said, I got it, Pastor. Thank you. Render to God. Render to God. Now, what happens when you render to God? All of a sudden, he says, I'm going to give you some stuff. Then you get to receive. I'm going to open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing you can't contain. And, and I, I'll make sure. And, and the reference is the windows of heaven. That's what happened with Noah. And, and I know all the cartoons and story books and, and stuff talk about Noah with rain droplets. There were rivers coming from the sky. I don't know what it looked like, but he said he opened floodgates. Rivers came from the sky. And it flooded the entire earth. That's the imagery God is trying to convey to the people who will just tithe and offer well. I will empty the floodgates of heaven. That's really what it means. Not just open, but it means to take from the bottom and pour out upon you if you do this. Secondly, he says he's going to repel. He said, I'll rebuke the devourer. And I'll make sure that your grapes don't cast their, cast their fruit in the field. 
the vines don't do what they shouldn't do. Now, the, the devourer were pests and pestilence. Yes. So animals, bugs, and disease wouldn't rob you of your harvest. God will personally watch out for your stuff. And the vines casting the grapes didn't have to do with pestilence. It had to do with drought. It had to do with arid conditions that weren't conducive for the, the fruit to remain on the vine. And so it would cast its fruit early, not being able to be eaten, but in hopes of surviving the seed so that the seed could produce crops next year. And God said, I'll make sure the environment of your harvest is conducive for, for growth so that you're able to harvest in due season. God will personally look after your stuff. And it is not dependent upon how the economy goes. I want the economy to go great. But your, your provision is not dependent upon the economy. Your God will protect you in the middle of it. He'll repel stuff. And then lastly, he'll restore you to factory condition. You don't know what you should be. You're used to who you are. And you've come a long way from what you used to be. So you think, this is good. This is good. I'm, I'm, I'm straight. But you have no idea what you're supposed to be. And this is why Paul told the church at Ephesus, because they didn't understand either. I pray in verse 18, chapter 1, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened. So that you might know, Brett's, Brett's paraphrase, might know why in the world he put you on the planet. You need your eyes opened so that you can understand why he created you. The original language says that your eyes might be opened, that you might understand the hope of his calling you. Oh, there's something he wants you to do that's fabulous. And you're supposed to be much greater next six months than you are now. People ought not be able to recognize you in some degree a year from now because they say, wow, you have really grown. And you just keep growing until the day where you just graduate on into glory. The Lord wants to do that. He wants to restore the factory settings. And he says, when you do this corporately, people will call you a delightful land. Rarely do they ever use those kind of adjectives with respect to the church. They don't call us delightful. They call us pitiful, hypocritical. They call us everything else but complimentary things. You will be called a delightful land, and I will bless you in it, and all the nations will call you blessed. He will restore these people that have been dwelling in the land for a better part of 700 years. He will restore them to the factory settings so that everybody will remember the covenant that he made with them. And God wants to remind the world of the covenant that he made with his people. And one of the elements that is important to that memory recollection is, is the, the, the idea of, of tithing and offering. Now, tithing doesn't fix everything. There are so many areas in which you need to obey. So many. So this is not a gloss over, but it is an important element to your walk with God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and grace. Please inspire and bless these people so that they can do right and be right.